people come to me realizing something's not working or they have an aspiration of where they want to be. At the end of the day, they want to make a pivot to something else. In order to get down there to make that pivot, they need a strategy. And then what I tell people is it may take multiple strategies for you to get to where you want to be, but we'll get there. The question is, are you ready for the marathon? Because it's not a sprint. From Washington, D.C., this is The Tightrope. I'm your host, Dan Smolin. Carla Fleming's gloriously happy childhood dreams of doing meaningful work included being a teacher, a doctor, and a journalist. To the casual observer, career destinations such as these appear disconnected, but not to Fleming, who says that together they pointed her to a career that's all about solving difficult business problems. As she explains, a teacher helps you learn to be better, a doctor makes diagnoses to make you better, and a journalist figures out what's going on. These three childhood dreams laid the groundwork for her as an adult to be a successful and highly quoted business consultant. And now, Fleming uses design thinking to help businesses thrive, scale revenues, and most important, connect with consumers in what she calls wearing the customer's badge. We spoke with Carla Fleming in September 2018. Carla Fleming, welcome to The Tightrope. Well, thank you, Dan, for having me. So tell us a little bit about you. Where are you from? Well, I'm from Willingboro, New Jersey. It's about 20 miles outside of Philadelphia. So as I like to tell people, we're from South Jersey. Uh, it's the same town that Carl Lewis, the Trek star, Olympic Trek star, grew up in. I did not know that. Did yeah. you know him? No. Did <laughs> your family? Well, my brother ran track for the track team that Carl Lewis's parents ran. So take me back to when you were a little kid. Mm-hmm. five or six or seven, maybe older. When you were dozing off at night, getting ready to go to sleep, what did you dream about? Oh God, I have multiple dreams of what I wanted to do. I think the first dream was probably being a teacher. Um, my mother, I think, wanted to be a teacher at one point. My uncle was a college professor. But then that kind of switched to, oh, maybe I want to be a doctor. And then it switched to you know, I want to be a journalist, perhaps, because this I grew up in the era um, where Watergate was the talk of the town on TV. And, you know, my mother thought this was important for us to see. Okay, you have to understand, our family was a bunch of news junkies. Oh, right. Okay. <laughs> so, growing up, we watched two to three news programs a night. We read two to three newspapers a day. So, when Watergate came on the TV... As kids, this was not what we wanted to watch. We wanted to watch the cartoons, and at one point, we just got sick of Watergate and turned on the cartoons, and my mother was like, turn it back! Some, some mom and dad were trying to engage you and your brother and sister in political discussion. Yeah, we, that was the dinner table. It was either the politics of what was going on in the news or what we read, or it was also talking about what went on at work um, where my father worked he worked at Ford Motor Company, mm-hmm. and so yeah, we're Ford babies, and we're proud of it. And he would talk about, as an engineer, what was going on in work, and sometimes it would be about the project, sometimes it would be about the people, sometimes it was about the organization. And then my mother worked for the federal government so in procurement, so she talked about what that environment was like. And for her, never having been in the military and having worked on 
you know, military base, it was kind of a different experience. So by the time I got to high school and I was working for the student new newspaper, I kind of realized that maybe I want to be in business. And I say that because I think the seed for that was planted when I was like five or six years old when I got a cash register for Christmas. So it was just totally out of the box because normally I was looking for the books you know, or whatever. And we wound up with a cash register. And I'm like, okay. So you're, so you're, run, you're running your play store and your brother and your sister are customers, right? Well, I was kind of the teacher. I was <laughs> <laughs> kind of the, you know, let's go do this, let's go do that. But the one thing that, you know, a couple things that were consistent, you know, we read a lot, but we all had library cards. And so that was our jumping off point for discovery so yeah I loved reading mysteries whether it was Nancy Drew Hardy Boys Ian Fleming's James Bond series or Agatha Christie or Sherlock Holmes but that interest kind of evolved over time to into biographies to kind of learn more about people you know mysteries it was fun to play detective but biographies kind of gave you the reality of what was going on in life and you know at the time we were looking at the peace accords that Jimmy Carter worked on and I wound up reading Sadat's autobiography and then my dad says well look at the other side and so I wound up reading Menachem Begin's book now this is in by then junior high right. and so you know, they ask you what did you do for your summer and I said this is what I read you know the teachers looked at you like yeah right but that was what I was reading so I'm looking at these aspirations that you had teacher doctor and journalist and our <laughs> listeners are probably going to think oh, wow, three completely different things. But do you think there was a connection mm -hmm. of some kind between those three yeah. aspirations? What yeah. were they? It was about solving problems. Think about it this way. A doctor goes in and he'll do a diagnosis and figure out what's going on with you and hopefully make you better. A journalist does a lot of research but you get to interview people to figure out what's really going on and you have to look at all the different sides. The teacher is about getting you to want to be better, to learn something and to want to be better about what you do, to take that education or, you know, pass it on because, you know, this is a process where you're sitting up in front of a room, you're imparting new knowledge, and you're trying to get people to engage with it. So I think all that time, that was kind of laying the groundwork for me and what I do now, which is consulting because I have to sit and interview people to understand what their pain is and diagnose it. I actually have to go do research because I jump into a lot of different industries and I don't necessarily know the industry, but I can learn it and figure out as a fresh set of eyes, which is what journalists wind up doing, see things in a different, in a different way. And you know, the teaching is about the imparting. So when you sit down with a client, you're imparting, here's a set of recommendations. Here's what I'm seeing. Here's why it feels and looks this way. Here's where you are, and here's where you could be. And part of a teacher's role is to give you aspirations for where you could be if you would do the work that we are asking you to do. Now, I think there was another influence in your life, and that's dad. Dad mm -hmm. was an engineer. Mm -hmm. So part of what you were doing, maybe consciously or unconsciously, was reverse engineering. Yeah. You can't understand a problem until you break it down to understand yeah. What got you to that problem? Right. So one of the things that the dinnertime discussions, yes, it was debate. Yes, it was hearing what went on at work. But it was also about, and I laugh because so many people now, when they talk to me, they're, especially if they're engineers, they say, man, you, you think like an engineer. And mm. I think that's the thing that my father imparted is about the logic. And I think writing and 
requires a logic. Um, and the thing that our parents always told us is, you know, we come home from school and say so and so did this, that, and the other thing. And my dad said, "Well, as long as you're in the, this family, this is what the Fleming family does, yeah. and you will think for yourself." Right. But I think that was something that was passed on from my dad, dad's father and mother. Where if my dad was, you know, did something wrong, his dad would sit down and talk to him about it and make him think his way through it. And it's the thing that I think when I look at what my brother does, he's a personal trainer, my sister's in the legal field. That is something that is the glue that I think binds our family is we are a bunch of strategy, strategic thinkers. We think critically about what's going on. And for us, the blank sheet of paper is opportunity. You know, when everybody else is freaking out, it's chaos is what we're like, ooh, this looks interesting. You know, it's kind of like moth to a flame. We kind of like that, where we get to work with people to unpack what's going on. And some of it's emotional. Some of it is actually technical and tactical. And we have to come up with a strategy to get you where you want to be or solve a problem that we're seeing that you're not addressing. And so that kind of, I think, all of that stuff that we learned at the kitchen table at dinner or the newspapers that we read or whatnot, has helped shaped us in how we think about what we do and what we are interested in pursuing. That's very interesting. Mm -hmm. And your parents gave you the permission not only to dream, but to think. They demanded it. They demanded it. Even yeah. better. <laughs> yeah, they demanded it. You didn't really appreciate it at the time, but what a gift they gave you. Well, I think it was funny because when we, as kids growing up in Willingboro, which was, you know, the Levitt town of New Jersey, it was diverse. Mm -hmm. So you had to be able to think, and our parents came from the South during segregation and one of the things we now realize um, is that we were part of that black migration of coming from the south and coming to New Jersey and wanting an integrated environment. So kind of like what Martin Luther King talks about and we actually got to live it. And so when we're doing that, you have to still think critically about what are your goals, what are your values, yet how do you engage with the community at large to learn and experience other things? So that was one of the cool things that we got to do. And one of the things our parents did was they let us pick the church we would go to. Wow. Mm -hmm. I did not know that about you. Mm -hmm. What was that like? Oh, that was fun. It was fun because you got to, to, you got exposure to different cultures and different churches. So we all, in our family, were Baptists. And so we went to an African-American, predominantly African-American church, and then we went to a predominantly white church, and we wound up at the predominantly white church. <laughs> And I think in a way that's just where we needed to be because when I sit down and think about the church services, the pastor was so rigorous in his thinking. He'd sit down and talk about the translation of something or a word from Hebrew to Greek to, to English. And then in, you know, when you came in and when you got the brochure for what the service was gonna be about, you actually had a page set aside for an outline and you had the chance to fill in the outline as you went along. So there was always critical thinking in our world, whether it was at home, it was at church, or it was at school. So by the time I you know, went to Rutgers, it was like, oh, please, this is normal. <laughs> this, you know, asking us to do critical thinking, it was like, yeah, okay, fine. <laughs> so take us to Rutgers. What was that like? Um, that was fun. I was the first daughter in my immediate family on my mother's side, my father's side, to go to college. So for me to go, my grandmother rode up with us. That was a big deal. 
Oh, she must have been proud. She was. She said, don't screw it up. <laughs> she said, don't screw oh, it up. Oh, she wasn't playing. <laughs> because you're talking about a woman that, you know, in her era, and I think sometimes we forget, we always think people had the opportunity to go to college. They didn't. In our family, my grandparents, you know, they left school maybe fifth, sixth grade and went to work. So here's a grandmother that in another lifetime, because she was so good with math. I mean, she'd do figures in her head and she would just, you know, if she gave you money to go to the store, you better come back with the change because she could tell you what the change should be. This is somebody I thought could have been an engineer, a mathematician, if the opportunities had been there for her. Because she just, she just could do it. It was just, what was she exposed to? What did she have the opportunity to do? I mean, now I laugh because she said if she had the chance, she'd get a red Corvette because she didn't drive. But she said, I would, if, you know, that was one of her dreams. She's like, I'd love to get like a red convertible, you know, to be able to go out and drive. So I'd see a grandmother to have that vision of what, if she could drive, what she wanted. And then I had another grandmother who I laughed because she's born in 1901. She got married in 1919. The oldest of eighty-nine kids. And she's just a go-getter. I mean, just whatever she wanted, she went for. She, you know, eventually got married. Family moved to Pennsylvania. Her husband moved, and she moved to Pennsylvania. He worked in the coal mines. She didn't like, didn't think it was safe. Moved right on back down to Virginia. And the fact that she learned how to drive at an older age didn't bother her. She just, she just kept going. And, you know, when he passed, her husband passed, she was like, all right. So she took the big house that she bought with the insurance money so that my father and her would have a place to live and turn that into revenue, meaning she rented out the rooms. <laughs> so she was always in a way entrepreneurial because what I found out later is her father was very entrepreneurial. So in a way, I feel like maybe my brother and I are, from an entrepreneurship perspective, are living that dream that our great-grandfather lived, our grandmother lived. So the name of your company is? Pivoting Strategies. And how did that come about? How did that name come about? Well, I started off as Renewable Marketing and rebranded um, this year. And the reason I did it was because I do business strategy and marketing strategy. In my world, and when I see with Fortune 500 companies, whether it's GE or Apple or Ford or whatever, the business strategy and the marketing strategy have to link together in order for you to really grow and be effective and get to scale. And I was talking to a prospect and he was saying, oh, what do you do? And I explained it. He says, oh, you pivot companies. And I was like, okay, wait a minute. You know, next day I woke up, I was like, pivot, pivot. And then I came up with the name Pivoting Strategies. And the reality is it really makes a lot of sense because it's what I do. People come to me realizing something's not working or they have an aspiration of where they want to be. At the end of the day, they want to make a pivot to something else. In order to get down there to make that pivot, they need a strategy. And then what I tell people is it may take multiple strategies for you to get to where you want to be, but we'll get there. The question is, are you ready for the marathon? Because it's not a sprint. And if you are, we can develop some strategies to help you pivot your company to where you want to be. So what's the biggest pivot you have to do with a potential client? It's multi-layered. I think one, it's mindset. Because okay. you have to admit you have a problem or a goal or an aspiration because otherwise none of this will matter. You won't do it because it's hard and it's going to take a bit. So if I get your, if your mindset's there, that's the first step. But two, we have to really sit down and understand where your business is today and where you want it to go. And that means really unpacking 
some of the concerns you've had or thoughts you've had or it's us looking at your market or us you know understanding not just your market but where the marketplace is going where your customers are going and once we understand that then we can start to put a strategy together to get you down to get you where you want to be so let's let our listeners in on a little secret i am your client (laughs) yes you are so i want you to take over and talk about how we came together how you perceived my challenges as a value provider and what did we do to fix that or to mitigate the problems i was having okay so we wound up meeting through a green uh, group leaders in energy and because we were both interested in clean energy and sustainability but that was kind of your night job your day job was an executive recruiter for small and medium businesses in the marketing and sales space and your goal was to actually get people hired in and once they got hired in you were also looking to have a sustainability corporate social responsibility discussion because a lot of the people you were hiring into those organizations had that same concern you came to me because you were blogging and you were doing social media that's ahead of the curve versus what I saw with a lot of other folks Mm. and what you said is this isn't working I'm not picking up new clients and so we sat down and we had a series of conversations and we realized in your background you had done radio in another life and I said why not podcasting (laughs) and you said wait a minute okay let's think about this and what it was at the time and we created Green Suits Radio was a brand extension Right. where you talked about sustainability, you talked about corporate social responsibility, and then 2016 happened, meaning the election. But at the same time, we had done a lot of research and we had done some design thinking work to really figure out, okay, if you were going to be a podcaster, where were you, were you going to fit and was this the right audience? So let's clue in on what happened in 2016. A week and a half before the general election, I'm in a room with Wall Street people who are saying not if, but when the Clinton administration starts forwarding these ideas on clean energy and on uh, sustainable jobs and on workforce issues that will get more people into, you and I both said, okay, this is working. Mm -hmm. Now we know where this is going. Then the night of the election, surprise, no Clinton administration. Why don't you take over there? <laughs> From there, what did we what did we do? What well, did we pivot to? Okay, so what we realized is that clean energy was not going to be as impactful as a focus from an administration perspective as we had thought. But our research also started to ask the question, what did sustainability and corporate social responsibility represent from the people the people you were placing? And it really reflected a desire to define what work meant for them. And so realizing that we had a bigger discussion around the redefinition of work, regardless of what space you were in in your life at that time, and we kind of saw that throughout running through the clean energy space consistently, that we thought we had a bigger opportunity that we could go after, which was redefinition of work. And so we changed the name of the podcast to The Tightrope with Dan Smolin. And the goal with that name change was to really reflect the angst that was going on and people were feeling and expressing about jobs, where job creation was going, but also the opportunity that was there of people starting up in the gig economy, people becoming entrepreneurs, second act folks 
and I would consider myself a second act or a third act, you are probably the same, where we wanted to try something different and have an impact. And we just felt like there weren't enough people, you know, really wasn't somebody talking about it the way you were talking about it. So what you've described here is an iterative process. Mm -hmm. It doesn't have necessarily a beginning, a middle, and an end. It might have several beginnings, several middles, and several outcomes. Right. We started off in 2016 thinking, oh, this will be easy peasy, right? Mm -hmm. We will use this podcast called Green Suits Radio as an extension of the Green Suits brand to hopefully get us more business, get mm -hmm. us more candidates. And everything seemed okay until the election when we realized this isn't going to work. We've mm -hmm. got to completely blow this thing up and start in a new direction. Mm -hmm. Do you think that the average business owner is aware of that? that that's what they may have to do as well. No. I think people are so focused on their day-to-day -day activities and what they're doing just to make sure that the bills are paid, the revenue's coming in, do I have people in the seats that I have for a marketing event. They're trying to run their business. But when you have signals that indicate that something's not working, meaning revenue's not growing or clients aren't buying what they used to in terms of the volumes or um, you know, the referrals or the references are no longer working. Mm. Those are signals that you have a problem and you, you need to address it. It means you've got to actually pull yourself out of it. And what we do, you know, I, our vision statement is we give you the time and space to cultivate the future of your business. So we have to actually get you to pull up, pull your head out and step away from the day-to-day -to, -day to actually spend that time doing the deep thinking that's gonna be required to figure out where are we gonna pivot your business. And in your case, we did the deep thinking and you shut down your recruiting business in 2018. I did, I'd had enough. And now you're pivot, you've pivoted full-time into um, the podcasting. That is you know, one type of pivot that people can make others have it's been you know other clients we've worked with it's really been okay so how do we rethink how you are bringing your capabilities to bear in the marketplace to develop some thought leadership that's going to be meaningful i don't think i could have pivoted out of recruiting unless i felt i was going into something that had vastly more opportunities for us mm -hmm. to communicate, to create revenue scale, and to create engagement with people who really needed help. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the things you got me to was the idea of what your brand means. Oh yeah. <laughs> and I'm wondering if you could talk about your idea, which we call wearing the customer's badge or wearing the consumer's badge. Yeah. What is that, Carla? So basically when we talk about wearing the customer badge, it's really acknowledging that the marketplace has changed. And it's one of the reasons I think folks are scared to make the pivot is because they don't know what to do. So let me back up and give you an example. I'll use Walmart and Amazon as an example. Everybody knows the brand Walmart and they know what they're about. 2013 to 2016, if you look at the revenues for Walmart, they were pretty much flat. And by 2016, there was negative growth. Amazon, on the other hand, was in the double-digit growth, and it went from, say, about 19% growth to almost 30% over that same time period of 2013 to 2016. So you asked the question, what did they do? And I would say that Walmart was wearing their brand badge, meaning trying to get customers to wear 
Walmart's brand badge by shopping there, shopping in the stores and saying that's how we are going to grow our business. So from, let's say, the automotive space, mm -hmm. the idea behind that is a Ford Country Squire. Oh, I'm really dating myself. Mm -hmm. A Ford Country Squire station wagon I driver. Had, we had one of those. Looks like, <laughs> and you list off the attributes. Mm -hmm. And they live in this kind of neighborhood mm -hmm. and they go to these kind of events and they buy these other kind of products. Mm-hmm. What you're saying now is that that's not working. Right. What I ask people, what type of questions do you think Walmart was asking versus Amazon? Hmm. Walmart's question, you know, was basically, how do I get customers in the store? How do I keep them wearing my brand badge? And once they looked at the negative growth, they're like, you know, what do we have to do to change this? So their impulse was, we know we're right. We just need to do more of something. Right. And that's what I'd say is over-optimizing your business. Mm. Companies do this all the time. It works. They've made a lot of investments in people, resources, and infrastructure. And when you over-optimize your business in this way, and you know, um, Michael Porter talks a lot about this, you wind up realizing that it's no longer working. You're not getting as much growth or business or revenue out of it as you once did. So at some point, it turns negative. Now, Amazon's question when they looked at their growth and you look at their growth is, how do I keep doing this or how do I do this better? Not from an optimization perspective, but they answered the question differently. So for Walmart, the way they realized, you know, we've got to change, is they said, what are we not doing well in? Where is, really, where is the growth really sitting? And what they realized is they needed to make a, an investment, a mm. $3.1 billion investment in the acquisition of Jet.com. That's an e-commerce platform because where they were not doing well was e-commerce and where the growth was, was e-commerce. So for those not familiar, Jet.com does it, what? It's similar to Amazon. It's a competitor of Amazon. And so Walmart realizes that they need to, where their weakness is, is online. And so the acquisition of Jet.com made a lot of sense because that's also where the growth is. Mm -hmm. When you look at the generational shift that we are seeing with millennials and Gen Z, all they know is buying off the internet. They buy off of Amazon. They buy their music off of Apple or Spotify. They don't go in the store. So Walmart has a growth problem, which is by 2016 negative. So that means, yeah, you may have people coming in the stores, but they're not buying in the way that you see the growth on the e-commerce platform. So they bought Jet.com in 2016, then they made six other acquisitions in 2017, all e-commerce, whether it was high-end clothing for men, outdoor gear, furniture, women's vintage clothing, all e-commerce platforms. They doubled down on the bet. So Walmart, what they realized is that now they have a catalog of 70 million plus products online. They saw almost a 50% growth with that e-commerce piece that had a positive impact on the bottom line. And because they did things like, as long as you spend $35, shipping is free, so mm -hmm. you don't have to be a member. And they also made it easy for you to decide where you wanted to get your delivery. Whether Did you want to pick it up at the store or did you want to get it at home? If you, if you picked it up at the store, guess what? They saw in-store sales go up because now they had an integrated set of channels. With Amazon, they said, how do we keep this growth going? So they made a different set of bets. Yes, they did some acquisitions. They made some acquisitions in the business-to-business -business space 
with different solutions around cloud, et cetera, to expand their brand in that space for business products and solutions. But one of the biggest bets they made was the acquisition of Whole Foods. So when they completed the acquisition of Whole Foods, they saw, I think, about a 30% increase in revenue the next quarter. But what that also did was gave them bricks and mortar, which they didn't have because that was a weakness for them. So if they're competing with Amazon, I mean with Walmart, Wal uh, Amazon's acquisition of Whole Foods gives them the in-store place for people to pick up their deliveries. So it addresses in a way the last mile. You know, if you don't want your delivery stolen from the front steps of your house, maybe it makes more sense to have it dropped off at an Amazon store. I mean, a Wal I'm sorry, a Whole Foods store that you can then pick it up and be done. The other thing is Amazon picked up a lot of people who were not Amazon Prime customers. Huge. They're about 60 some, maybe 70 some percent or more penetrated the middle class. So the Whole Foods kind of helps them pick up more there. But what Amazon has really been smart about in figuring out how to stand apart from people is they have Amaz their Amazon days. It's about 30 hours. This year was about 30 hours. Though when they had it last year, it drove about a billion dollars in revenue. You know, that was more than double the, the prior year. And this time I think it was more than that, way more than that. So what Amazon has figured out is, how do I make money in the quarter that are not my fiscal year in? And how do I create excitement? And how do I wear the customer brand badge? How do I give my customers the experience they want? They did that through the acquisition of Whole Foods I'm wearing the customer brand badge because now I can give you a choice of where you want to pick it up, meaning the product that you just ordered. I'm wearing the customer brand badge because I'm now making um, Prime available to low income at a reduced price or a student rate price for folks in college. So again, I'm wearing the customer brand badge. If I want that college student to be a customer, to actually be a standalone, not mom and dad's Prime account, but their own individual account, that I need to figure out a way to make them my customer early on. You bring up Amazon, and I just saw an interview with Jeff Bezos, mm -hmm. and it's very clear he, he completely aligns with this thinking because mm -hmm. the first thing he said was, I'm focused on two things, the customer, but I'm also thinking about what am I engaging with them out two and a half years from now. Exactly. I saw that same interview, and that to me is exactly what companies have to start doing now. Everybody is online. The internet is a utility. So that gives you, everybody, the opportunities that you didn't have years ago to be competitive. And you don't have to be big to be competitive. So let's talk about that. Somebody listening to this episode is going to hear us talking about Amazon and saying, Oh, great. You just picked the largest company in the world or the second largest company in the world that just crossed a trillion dollars in revenue. Mm -hmm. But they did it in 20 years. That's the fastest we've ever seen it. Okay, but I'm some poor guy or woman running a fairly small business or maybe a mid-sized business. Mm -hmm. It still works, though. It does. What I'm noticing now is that Nordstrom, who's been around 110, 111 years, smaller than Amazon, mm -hmm. very targeted, has come out with a new business model called Nordstrom Local, and they care about the last mile. And what they've done is this is a platform that is maybe 1,000 to 3,000 square feet, much smaller than the standard maybe 30 to 40,000 Nordstrom square foot store. 
It's located in an urban area mm -hmm. that is walkable by millennials, and it carries no inventory. Other than things to try on. Exactly. So you can order, because that's how you're going to have to get to the product, is to order it. As if, you know, because you're comfortable ordering on Amazon, hey, you should, you should be comfortable ordering on Nordstrom. And if you, you can work with a stylist online if you want to order something, or you can go in the store and work with a stylist and, you know, place the order there. The product can come to your house or it can come to the store where the stylist can then bring the tailor in to tailor it to your fit. Oh, by the way, if you have some shoes that need some repair, there's a cobbler who can repair the handbag and the shoes. If you need a manicure, you can go over there and get a manicure. And by the way, you can also get a drink from the juicer. And oh, while you're waiting, you can probably work in their WeWork style environment. What that says to me is that if I am a local shoe repair manicurist cleaners, I now have a national retailer that has become my local competitor. That's huge because they're not, they've figured out ways to cut costs, cut inventory, cut resources, redistribute resources in different parts of the business that makes sense to drive this business model. And what are you going to do as that retailer? And you're going to have to think differently. You're going to have to think about what does, what's the job your customer wants you to do. Right. Nordstrom figured it out. What the millennial wants is, I want to be able to walk to a store like Nordstrom, buy my products, try it on, get it fitted, and then I want my shoes repaired. Or and my then I want to go about my day, have lunch, and then do something else. I don't want to have to schlep my merchandise all over the I place. I want an experience. I want an experience. So think about it this way. The UK is about maybe 80% services driven as an economy. The United States is now about 60% services driven as an economy so that means experience matters more and more and that also means that you when you think about the products you have and that you're delivering do you need to deliver those in a different way does your business need to become a services business think about the fact that Amazon delivers books yeah we can do the physical part that's fine you can get a physical book to touch and feel but guess what you're buying more services whether it's the Kindle version of the book or the audio version of the book those are services. For illustration, Carla, let's come up with a category that might be more localized. Mm -hmm. One that I started my career in was the thrift industry, the savings banks. It became community banking. Mm -hmm. A lot of us look at community banks and say, okay, so what do they do? They, you know, they service demand checking accounts. You could maybe get a mortgage through them. But how can they apply the brand badge of their customer, but more importantly, turn themselves into a exactly. service business. What are your thoughts? Oh, I think there are opportunities on the table that perhaps they're not even thinking of. So I'll give you another example. And this okay. is the Bank of Ireland. Bank of Ireland has been in business almost three, almost 250 years. They know, you would think they would know banking and they would know how to get customers in the door. Their challenge was they wanted to go after entrepreneurs. And so they went to them and said, oh, look at all the wonderful products that we have. We have banking, checking accounts, credit cards, business corporate cards, blah, blah, blah. Wouldn't you want some of this? And people said, no. And they were like, wait, wait a minute. What do you mean no? And so they leveraged something called design thinking to figure out what the customer really wanted. And it's something that I do a lot of with my clients now. So what is design thinking? So design thinking is a process that graphic designers develop to solve difficult and complex problems. Um, in the recent Harvard Business Review article, some, they would call it now social technology. 
which I think is an interesting way, but a very relevant way to think about it. And we actually applied it to your business when we figured out your how to appeal to podcast listeners. Mm-hmm. So Bank of Ireland wound up using design thinking to talk to their customers. Mm-hmm. And what they figured out was the, the entrepreneur didn't want all that stuff that they were proposing. What they wanted was a place that what to work that wasn't the kitchen in their home, the bakery or coffee shop, or somebody's office space that in, an, in a company, you know, renting out some office space there. And so that led them to create a solution where they provide offices in their bank, where it's free, first come, first serve in the Bank of Ireland. There's an event meeting place. So if you want to showcase your product, you can showcase it in their space. But you can also, if you have an event that you want to do a presentation on, they've got an auditorium in there. They will help you with the marketing. Now, when you hear all that, what do you think that does? For a lot of those customers, what it did was it brought them closer to the Bank of Ireland because Bank of Ireland understood their needs and was providing a facility and resources that they didn't have to come out of their pocket with. Think about the fact that they had somebody who understood marketing and now this is a person that can help these folks do the marketing for their businesses or their products or whatever the event was. But out of that, Bank of Ireland had one of the first companies to come and use their facility got an investment of about 25 million euro. What do you think that company is going to do banking now? Oh, yeah. So what it does is it helps you understand what matters most to the customer to get you closer to the customer and to have that customer sitting in front of you telling you what they want. In real time. Yeah. So I'm sure they probably have a bunch of avatars so they understand. But here's the thing. Bank of Ireland has now taken this process and gone after understanding women in retirement and coming out with new products and solutions to address that. So they get the social impact because when you're helping entrepreneurs grow or you're helping women in retirement manage their money in a new and different way that's productive for their longevity, you have real skin in the game in the community. You care about that community. Yes, you do. You've got good word of mouth now because you're delivering on something that the community values and wants. So when you think about that terminology, social technology, I think that's a really good description of what design thinking is. Because we have relationships with our electronic devices, whether it's the computer or our phone. It's not like we have it with the TV years ago. The phone is with us, it's on us, it's always there. So we've got to find a new way as companies to have a relationship with our customers so that we're we're constantly wearing their brand badge because the long-term benefit is then they will wear our customer badge. You know, we started today talking about how we're going back to old styles of engagement. Mm-hmm. your family members who are entrepreneurs. Mm-hmm. They worked with their customers, their community. They were engaged with what they needed, what they wanted, what would make them happy. The examples that you've just described, Amazon, Walmart to a certain extent, Bank of Ireland, it's all come full. You're right. It's all come full circle. Mm-hmm. I really appreciate your time with us today, Carla. I also want to point our listeners to your website because I think let them continue their exploration as they learn about wearing the brand badge and about design thinking or about other things. So where would we point them? Point them to pivotingstrategies.com. Also, Instagram, just Pivoting Strategies is the full name, and you can find me on LinkedIn where I'm often. (laughs) If you want to connect on LinkedIn, please do so. Well, thank you for being with us on the tightrope today. Thank you. 
Our thanks to business strategy consultant and design thinker, Carla Fleming, for walking the tightrope with us. Check out our past episodes on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts by keywording The Tightrope with Dan Smolin. And if you like what you hear, please give us a five-star rating and post your comments like listener Huga26 who writes, I enjoy listening to The Tightrope in the car on my way to work. You have a great guest lineup. Well, thank you, Huga26. Don't forget to subscribe to our mailing list by visiting dansmolin.com. And please suggest topics that you believe we should tackle in future episodes by writing us at info at dansmolin.com. From Washington, D.C., this is The Tightrope. I'm Dan Smolin, and do remember this, our best days lie ahead. Have a great and successful week, everyone. 